gentleman at the back there. Good, good evening, Venerable. Welcome to Singapore. Thank you. I, I retired about two years ago. When I was hoping, I'm doing a sort of meditation. And then um, the thoughts come in. Uh, most of the uh, teachers say, you let the thoughts flow. You, you don't interrupt it. Mm-hmm. But some of the thoughts have a solution to my problems, the office problem. Mm-hmm. So don't you think it's good to engage the thoughts and you know, to understand more of the solution to the problem? If that's what you're looking for, yeah. <laughs> well, you find also that uh, with you trying to figure something out, it's best just to to put it to one side and sit quietly, and then you might find that the answer comes by itself in terms of your thinking mind. Uh, but you'll also notice that even as you get that 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 uh, understanding, you think, oh, let's figure that out. You find. Well, something else I need to think about. Ah, what about that? <laughs> so thinking itself isn't, it's a partial solution to problems. But the thinking process eventually becomes a problem as a process. That is, it's, it's, it's not satisfactory. So the, the, the idea is um, to sort of um, observe the thoughts and let it pass and, and in that process bring you to the natural self. Um, I would say you have to put a little more into it than that. Certainly just taking the pressure off uh, by not struggling with thought or trying to think something. It's good to take the pressure off, off the mind. Having taken the pressure off the mind, there's a possibility of, okay, selecting. Why don't I incline my mind towards this? Uh, so then, this is where we pick up something like breathing in and breathing out, or the sensations of the body, <coughs> because this will will help to. Uh, both strengthen one's capacity to, f- to focus and also establish the mind on a set of experiences that are more stabilizing than thought. And that stabilizing has a calming effect. So if we choose to find some stronger calming effect, then you need to go to the body. And so when we relieve some of the pressure of thought, you can direct yourself back to your body, but it's by asking the question, how do I know I have a body? How do I feel my body right now? Or even, am I breathing in and breathing out? How is the breathing now? So that question points your attention back to this body. Can you stay there? So this is called vitaka. Vitaka, to point your attention. And the other quality that is, is, is conducive to meditation is called vichara, which means having pointed your attention to the body or the breathing. The next question is how does it feel? What's it like? So, point, where is it? Vichara, 
how is it? Point, that's Vitaka, where is it? And then how is it? That's Vichara. And these two give the mind something to kind of to get involved with. Yeah. Because otherwise it will get involved with planning, work and things like that. Which can have its uses, but there's a time in which you want to say enough of that. Yeah, because this goes on. This applying myself to this will bring me to another domain of experience. Not just my thinking, working life, but this is going to take me to something that's about birth and death. <laughs> you know, and something that, that's of a more uh, long term uh, relevance. And I'll guard, train my attention in this way. Where am I? I've got another question. Mm. Um, at one stage, when I was doing these meditations, I was uh, initially a bit uncomfortable, you know, some sort of uh, upset stomach or something. And then I thought, no, no, I got, I got this, this um, I noticed my heart was beating very erratically. So I thought of coming down my heartbeat to do meditation. While I'm doing it, suddenly I feel that I'm disappearing. So I got frightened and I shook myself up. So is that um, sort of negative way of... of, of uh, Doesn't sound like an experience that I'd recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how did you calm? How did you calm your heart beat? I mean, the, the, the normal way you just you know focus on your breath, you know. And you felt yourself disappearing. Right. What was? Do you know? Was nothing there, or what? Was it just the sense of fear? Was there the emotional state? You, you don't feel yourself then. Uh huh. And so, yeah, yeah, you don't feel yourself. Something disappears. And what doesn't disappear? Well, normally, when, when you uh, do meditations, you, you, you are aware of your body. Right. In this case, this feeling that you know the senses of awareness is not there. So I'm frightened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well practically it's good to uh, uh, first of all establish your attention on fairly obvious sensations such as the sensation of the pressure of your legs on the floor and feet on the chair. You know, something you, you can easily feel and sense and as you, because as you begin to find a way of relaxing your thoughts then your normal person your normal self isn't engaged and so that loss of, of apparent self can make one feel uh, anxious or disoriented and this disorientation brings up a particular uh, nervous response an energetic response that is further destabilizing and then they get an emotional state and then we can even lose awareness of our body 
<clears throat> so it's good to establish a, a strong uh, foundation on awareness of the body in a, in a very uh, uh, accessible form so sensations of sitting and uh, using vitaka vichara because these two I mean the mind is now firm clear so it's still the mental attention is also something one can feel confident about it's not just you're definitely consciously there doing it and you have something you can definitely access even as your emotional states or your normal preoccupations pass away what you find is you can get on perfectly well without yourself you don't need it there all the time <laughs> would you recommend that a person uh, should not do meditation when he's sick or something like that? sick or fever or well when one is healthy or unhealthy one should always be attentive and sustain mindfulness (laughs) but you might find different object of mindfulness something different something else so if you're sick you're mindful of unpleasant feelings coming and going you're mindful of low energy you're mindful of you know unhappy mind states but you're mindful of that Uh, because if we can only meditate when we're feeling good and healthy it's not going to be not going to do a lot of meditation (laughs) and remember the most the most important times to be to be mindful is when you're dying when you don't feel good at all most people but then if you sustain mindful awareness of that then you can gradually learn to let go of that which needs to be let go go of uh, purify the mind of distress grudges anxiety and focus the mind on gratitude and release this is something to cultivate in one's death one's dying then one's dying will not be a bad one it'll be a good one since we're all going to have one we might as well make it as, as good as possible <coughs> so sickness is like a, a like a, a dress rehearsal <laughs> and you want to go through the rehearsals plenty of times till you get good at it so you're ready you know, you know, so you're doing the rehearsal so learn how to sustain mindfulness when one is sick but certainly when you're sick you don't want to be uh, you have to be very natural you don't want to be trying to create some weird mind state because this could be extremely disruptive and, and, and actually unhelpful for one's physical condition when you're sick it's very important that your mind state be as, as pure and as helpful and as kind and as clear as possible then this definitely has a beneficial effect on one's physical health and one's emotional health in some ways being sick is the most important that you meditate because it really will support you but then make it that your meditation is supportive not something you create more stress with Thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. Lady over here. 
in a Chinese Mahayana teaching, uh, there were masters who taught the recitation of uh, the name Amitabha. Mm. Right? There, there, there was this particular one, Billy Gerber in Guam. He taught the recitation of Amitabha three times, three times left, right, and then four times, like, you know, different. Mm. That is also a form of meditation. Mm. Um, what is your opinion of that? Well, um, essentially, you know, the Buddha's concern was to uh, put an end to suffering, uh, to liberate uh, our mind. So then it's up to us to be responsible for that task, to do that, and to know how to know what we're doing, uh, and to know it in ourselves. And so this is the most important thing. You know. So I, I really only speak with uh, confidence about uh, practices that I have trained in. And so I have trained in that practice, so I couldn't really speak with confidence about it. Whether, you know, not saying it's right or wrong, because I don't know it. Uh, so I, have an, I don't like to have an opinion about something I haven't done. <laughs> But I would say, you know, if you'd like me to comment, I would say that um, certainly any time you focus on one thing and repeat it, that is the principle of meditation. You focus on one thing and you repeat it repeatedly, whether it's breathing in and out or walking up and down or using a mantra. You focus on one theme and you sustain it and you repeatedly do that. So therefore the mind picks up the quality of that theme yeah it picks up the quality of it so the very act of meditating has a certain calming effect because the mind is held and sustained the very very act of doing it has a certain steadying effect now secondary to that the mind also picks up the qualities the specific qualities not just the, the act of meditating but of what the meditation object contains. So breath contains a particular quality of natural energy. So the mind picks up the effects of natural energy. Now we might meditate on loving kindness, whereas I focus on people, my own myself, other people I know, present, future or past, that act of focusing has a certain steadying effect. The intention to generate goodwill brings a natural quality in the mind of goodwill. And so then the mind absorbs that quality and it's refreshed and brightened by that. Discards ill will, negativity, grudge, doubt, fear. Now if you say this is purely speculation because I haven't done it, if you focus on what Amita Buddha means, the bliss Buddha of the Western paradise offering salvation to everyone, that seems to be a very inspiring idea so that maybe bring a quality of inspiring gladdening energy into your mind yeah. but with all of it with all of it we realize whether it's breathing focusing mind on breathing focusing my mind on 
death, focusing my mind on loving kindness, focusing my mind on mindfulness of breathing, this focusing has been constructed, conditioned and done. It is not an ultimate truth, because I've created it. Therefore I use it to discard what should be discarded. I use it to discard grudge, ill will, bigotry, (coughs) agitation, fear, negativity, (coughs) craving, hatred, desire. I use it to discard that. Having discarded it, I then use it further to discard my opinions, my views about this, that and the other. Who's right and who's wrong? I discard that. Having discarded that, then I I think what needed to be done has been done. I can now discard this. So with regard to that, with what you said that you, know, you use what you have experienced to disregard, you know, uh, the next or the negative case, how does one use that uh, to deal with one's ego? What ego? Particularly, um, if someone is of, let's say, for instance, if someone. Uh, if, if someone, you know, if you are of a certain position, uh-huh. how could the use of that, the breathing, deal with ego? Well, um, just bear in mind, you know, there's, there's really no such thing as an ego. I don't think there's a thing as an ego, but there's egotism, which could be conceit, Pride, thinking what is better than others. Um, the Buddha said there are different kinds of ways of conceiving oneself better than others, worse than others, the same as others. So, this is what we call ego is the conceiving of uh, oneself in some state or another, some sense of status. But it's actually not an entity, it's an activity, a habitual activity. Yeah. So, you know, what happens to the king when he goes to the toilet? Is he still a king? (laughs) (laughs) Or is he just, oops, puts his crown down, you know. (laughs) Well, it's not very kingly, is it? You know. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, yeah, so then, so the the, uh, uh, sense of where, where breathing can help is that poor people breathe just as good as rich people. There's no status in that. Uh, you know, people who are not so pretty can breathe just as good as people who are very beautiful. There's no status, no sense of egotism in it. And the more modest and humble and open one is, then the, the more rich and full the breathing goes. So it goes against the way of the ego, which is, I am better, I am this, I am just this, I that's all um, contradictory to the nature of breathing. The less self you have in it, the better it gets. The less habits you have, the better it gets. The less you think about yourself as being something, or even being nothing, the better it gets. The less you self-concerned, self-conscious, the better it gets. So this gently disbands 
the energies and the habits that build up this sense of ego realizing there never was one in the first place it's just something that's being woven together through fear, anxiety I'm not good enough I've got to be better I've got to make sure I'm okay I don't want anybody to see me in this way I must look you know, you know, this fear, anxiety um, which is often a source of why people seek status because they're not, they don't have confidence in themselves as they are they have to become something special that's suffering <laughs> yeah. you're already fine you know, you already have the potential for great beauty and strength what do you need an ego for? <laughs> and so this, this, this naturalness of the breathing helps us to return to a fundamental, sanity, fundamental sanity and health in many respects. Yes. Um, I was contemplating. <clears throat> Should I ask the question? And since the mic come to the sister behind me, I thought maybe I come up to ask the question of the explore. Um, at the beginning of the talk, I thought um, energy means fire. But at the center of the talk, when the talk um, actually mentioned that when the energy rapture, you can then um, uh, achieve uh, pity and sukha, then I got it. Maybe um, energy refers to chita. So after that, when Rupa link energy to chi, then I thought, oh no, this energy is actually wind. Is is so, oh, which is which? So I get confused. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the day, I thought whether it's fire, is wind, or is chita, oh, it's all the living. So I'm a bit com- confused actually. So because I only pick up Buddhism um, for about two and a half years, so I'm really confused. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you see, like we have, for uh, example, like electricity. So is this light electricity? Sure. Then we have air conditioning. Is this air conditioning electricity? Sure. Then maybe you have um, um, a refrigerator. Is it electricity? Yeah, certainly. Then maybe you have um, a TV. Is that electricity? Yeah. Why are they so different? Because they're plugging in to different devices. So they manifest in different ways. So energy can manifest as fire, it can manifest as wind, it can manifest as water, soft, cooling, watery energy. It can manifest even as earth, solid forceful energy it can stirs up thought then it's thought energy it stirs up emotions it's emotional energy it powers the body it's bodily energy so this basic um, life force this, this uh, fundamental resource of energy can manifest in different channels or different um, aspects bodily emotional and conceptual thinking you can manifest in different um, qualities such as soft, um, cooling, or intense, fiery. It can manifest as light. It can manifest as something misty, 
soft and suffusive so it can manifest in different ways is that any, any use to you? so energy is actually an impermanent living place <laughs> oh yeah Okay, thank you. And there's energy which is associated with doing things. So, if you're familiar with the simple Taoist yin yang, then you have the yang energy is very much the doer, the harder, the driven, and the yin energy is the receptive. And then, energy can also be receptive, it means we're sensitive, we're open. That is also an energy form. Try to go to the experience of those, any of those qualities, and you'll find in, recept- in receptivity there's a spacious energy, which means everything is inclining towards opening, listening deeply, tuning in there's an energy there when you stand stand up and you find the balance coming into your body feeling balanced and that's an energy balance is something is finely bright and steady it's not hard it's not running, it's not fiery, but it's another spacious energy. Energy that reduces pressure. Normally when we use the word energy, we assume it's something that exerts pressure. Energy is some degree of power. That's all, that's part of our problem. I suggest in that we, as soon as we think of energy, we think, oh right, more. Know, push it, go for it, faster. You know. But uh, this is a tendency, you know, uh, in human beings. Uh, but there's also the energy that is receptive. And in meditation, it's important to remember both of those qualities. And it, when you practice qigong, you have to cultivate both of those qualities. The receptive is where the wisdom comes from. The wisdom comes from deep listening and sensitivity and spaciousness. The ideas come from somewhere else. <laughs> but the wisdom is that you know, an energy that receives, sensitizes, opens to, yeah, cooling. There's an energy there. Uh, so for meditation, it's that's one of the features of it is the receptive and by and large as people practice the receptive gets bigger and the active gets smaller so my next question is I I think I I, I sort of got it so my next question is um, when you go into jhana and the energy gets um, increased and uh, the heat increase. So how how do you actually um, continue sitting where you feel the heat and is the kind of burning and heat sensation that is 
pretty uncomfortable. But if you want to continue sitting, how should I continue to sit then in order to how should I reduce that kind of energy or, or contemplate or do anything so that I can continue to sit? Well, heating up is not a factor of jhana. So when you sit and you feel the uh, meditation and you're, you're, you continue to concentrate on the breathing and when you feel that you, your sitta is actually coming in and you're concentrating and you're not affected by even the thunder and the heavy rain outside and it's very loud thundering and all that but you're not affected and uh, well, how do you explain that when you see the blackness and when you first see it you have joy but after that you don't have anymore you just you just concentrate and you, you are aware of that kind of concentration only and get hotter and uh, so much so that you cannot continue so put, what kind of stage is this actually you put too much effort into it <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. So one needs to uh, take one's time and be more comfortable uh, and let the, uh, you see it sounds as if you're being a little bit too proactive, which is admirable in many ways, it means you're very sincere and dedicated, but you always have to trust, trust the process and let yourself be more receptive. And particularly finding harmony and balance. So if one is feeling a lot of heat, then the fire element is becoming too dominant. Therefore we need to balance it with the water element, which is much more suffusive and less intense. So how should the water come in when you're at that because I can't, you cannot move your concentration away from your breathing. That way you will lose your sitta, you will lose the right position. So I cannot be contemplating at the time. Do you mean you cannot or you don't want to? I'm not sure, I'm not trying. It's yeah. too hot, so I just let go. <laughs> well, before it gets too hot, if you know you have that tendency, as you contemplate breathing, Breathe like water. It's the out breath, if it suffuses, it's got a. You can breathe like water. There's an energy that is, particularly the out breath, has a certain sense of draining. And it can be helpful to visualize in that sense if you have a tendency towards fire. And intensity, uh, you should, it would be helpful to counteract that with a tendency to widen your awareness, to widen it, because if you constrict, you will naturally heat up. If you widen your awareness to the entire breath body as you're breathing in and out, and uh, keep it quite wide. And let it come to you. So normally we might be focusing as if we're moving in to an object and we call that concentration. But there's also a concentration which is about holding a wider 
boundary and instead of moving in sitting back as if the breath is bathing us Um, may I ask this question? Um, when you think about breathing, okay, when, the, when you have your energy going through your body, you can feel it. Let's say you feel it, but um, uh, what I meant is that uh, is this called uh, pasana when you feel the feeling going right through the air, going through your body? No. No. That's not vipassana, no. Mm-hmm. So when you feel the air is going through, um, what does it signify? Is it that you make your body relax, mm-hmm. and then then after that you would go for relaxation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even what? Well, what meditation? You see, if you're doing that, you're sustaining mindfulness. And then you'll be mindful doing that, and then when you've finished it, you can sit down and continue being mindful, and you can call it meditation. But it, it's just the same process. Mm. The most important thing is that you you find something that helps you to uh, free yourself from stress and pressure, and gets the body to feel comfortable. Uh, this then acts as a helpful foundation this is we call samatha, basically, that which steadies, calms, makes you feel a pleasant place, pleasant abiding. And from there you can develop vipassana, which means you begin to notice how momentary experiences, how it's fluctuating. Uh, and also you be, the, any th- sense of what one is becomes an obstacle, so you begin to release this view, I am. And this is... Uh, so that's very, very condensed, that's Samatha Vipassana. Vipassana is a wisdom teaching and Samatha is an energy teaching. And the two help each other. Qigong is an energy practice. Uh, mindfulness of breathing starts off as an energy practice and becomes a wisdom practice. But still, even when you're practicing with energy, you have to be quite wise about it, so you don't get you have to do it carefully so that you're not getting too much energy or imbalanced energy or fire energy something that's not proper so handling energies wisely produces a suitable basis for the real the full realization of wisdom which is called insight you know, this breathing through your body is just a figurative way of experiencing freedom from internal pressure, uh, congestion, tension, or dullness. And, and, and so then this makes the body then becomes a very uh, steady and bright uh, realm, a bright object, a bright state that your mind can rest in to further eliminate hindrances and obstructions. But when you watch the, the energy going through, is it your own perception? Well, it's not anybody else's perception, <laughs> is it? The perception of uh, the, the air going through. It's your perception, yeah. yeah. You have a perception of it. Yeah. It's an aggregate. So there's the Rupa aggregate and uh, energy is a subtle kind of rupa 
form. It definitely is a thing, it's not just an idea. It's a, a physical, subtle physical form called rupa. Whenever rupa arises in consciousness, when it's conscious of it, perception arises. The mind, oh, it feels like that. Then the Vedana, pleasant arises. Now that's the way that is. Sankara, which is the out of the aggregate, arises dependent on the perception. It takes the perception as a basis and then it gets activated. So if we cultivate uh, clear, calm perception, then the sankharas of agitation don't get going. If we cultivate a bodily perception based upon the body, the the sankharas associated with mental proliferation about the past and future don't get going. So we use one set of perceptions to counteract the mind's tendency to go to other perceptions such as perceptions of future, perceptions of past, perceptions of oneself and perceptions of others. And really, if you look at those four, that covers everything. (laughs) Future, past, self and others. Is there anything else to think about? (laughs) Now if you take those away, isn't that relief? <laughs> so we do this through this this embodiment experience. Thank you. Okay. Yes, gentlemen, a few rows back. Thank you, Bhante. Uh, I would like to clarify actually two things. First, is when you say the body is black, uh, do you mean? Figuratively, or literally, that there's a mental image of body. Um, it's more like um, it could be visual. The way that our uh, because the way that our awareness interprets things uh, is often through either visual uh, limiters, such as brightness or tactile limiter such as space or softness or even auditory limiter such as silence and subtle sound so any of those but the very very word bright can mean an emotion it can mean light it can mean a general state of feeling free from heaviness uh, light so the body can be any of those but in this context less heavy well when when uh, so you know when things feel less heavy and dense then one can experience that as a certain emotional brightness or even a visual brightness quasi visual not with the outer eyes but with the inner eye it's as if the nervous system yeah, it is it's refreshed and it tends then to activate uh, subtle qualities of light but it, it could do that but the general word when I'm meaning word bright it covers any of that emotional brightness visual brightness psychological brightness bodily brightness thank you um, also another question to clarify is um, the 
Buddha, before his enlightenment, he has already mastered Arupa Janas. So before Arupa Janas, he must have already mastered the first four Janas. So in the in the in the Nikayas, or even in the uh, post uh, canon, canon, canonical commentaries and so on, is there any reference to what other uh, what is or what other object that he used to enter this channel? No, I haven't found any. I've I've exhaustively studied these. I haven't actually found again. I could be wrong. I haven't found him referring to. Um, first jhana. I found him referring to the arupa, but not to the rupa. Because in the Nikaya, there's no mention of the jhana. I haven't found it. Uh, it seems that, you see, the quality of jhana means to absorb. Now, it's because arupa jhana are not bodily. It could be the case that uh, he had skills that could go to more focusing on mental states and eliminating certain mental conditions without referring to the body, since they were very strongly anti-body. That's a possibility. So there is, you know, so just remember the word jhana, it means absorb, and there are skillful jhanas and unskillful jhanas. Jhana is not necessarily always considered to be uh, skillful. So, for example, you know, Devadatta, he was able to attain jhanas, but not a good man. The very fact, absorbing, like mindfulness, you see, mindfulness, we think, oh, mindfulness is great. Well, there's such a thing as wrong mindfulness. He's mindful of the wrong objects. I'm, I could conceive there's such a thing as wrong jhana, absorption to the wrong objects, or the wrong states, or states that aren't necessarily wrong, but are not pertinent to realization. Now, this is just my opinions because it uh, uh, doesn't seem to, I haven't found in, in my readings. Uh, a thorough exploration of this topic. What exactly was the Buddha meditating on before he had his awakening? And uh, I don't, I don't see him talking about it that much. But I do see, read him talking about his experiences of, of Arupa, which he accomplished. Uh, but for example, he, he started doing things like um, suppressing the breathing. So it may have been that the, the arupas he was attaining was attaining through a kind of suppressive, medi- suppressive meditation, suppressing the body and going into a mental state, like a sort of hypnosis. Yeah. Because uh, I was actually about to ask, how was his uh, uh, instruction on the Anapanasati different from the way he has practiced it before he attained the uh, well, there's not much mention of how he was practicing before his enlightenment. So everything is really just uh, interpretation or deduction, because he didn't doesn't say very much about it. Apart from these arupa states, and also apart from his forceful asceticism. 
Yeah, the arupas are not, as far as I can understand, are not uh, an absolute requirement for liberation. They're, they're, they're possibilities that can arise from fourth jhana that one can enter into, but you don't need to. The main thing to, to free oneself is from the asava, corruptions, um, mental becoming, sensuality, ignorance. These are the main things you liberate from. And it's even said that a certain level of jhana is, is actually, um, you can't do this. So the uh, what's called the eighth, or the eighth, uh, um, neither perception nor non-perception is not a suitable base for liberation. It's too refined, you can't develop wisdom from it. So, uh, you know, you know, first, second jhana it's pretty good, dang good. Don't need to go into these arupas. Venerable, um, coming back to your experience of Qigong, can I say that uh, before you uh, practice the Qigong, you already have a Qi, everybody has a Qi. Mm. So after you practice the Qigong, does it mean that you have really mastered the Qi and um, direct the Qi? I hope I didn't give that suggestion. <laughs> I think to say I'd mastered anything would be a certain sign of arrogance. <laughs> I've 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 certainly got a better handle than I used to have. <laughs> but I've not even used it that, that completely. You know, there are people who dedicate their lives to doing to practicing Qigong, those are masters. They dedicate their lives. They do amazing things, you know, uh, amazing feats. But I, I don't. I just use it modestly, just to support my meditation. Thank you very much for all your sharings and uh, uh, reflections. Uh, I'm just, I'm just wondering uh, through your years of practice, you know, as a monk and, and as meditation. Could you share with us um, any challenges that with which you yourself face and uh, how you overcome them? Uh, and and I could I mean we could see that uh, you know you have the posture of great calmness. It's obvious from your practices. So could you just share with us you know some of your challenges? <laughs> some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what challenges? If you have challenges, you, I probably had exactly the same ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, from uh, you know, a novice monk, someone who has not, uh, uh, you know, know anything about Buddhism, you know, starting from there to what where you are now. So, in the beginning of, of your practice as a monk, you know, all the all the challenges in, in your practice as in meditation, obsessive thinking, obviously. Obsessive thinking, uh, self-critical. Do you ever get that? <laughs> Obsessive thinking, uh, self-critical, uh, speculative fantasies, daydreams, fantasizing this, that, and the other. Uh, desire, craving. Did we get any of that? <laughs> Ill will, uh, impatience, sleepiness, uh, opinionatedness. Uh, criticizing others, uh, 
even more impatience. Uh, impatient with myself for being so impatient. <laughs> when can I ever learn to be patient? Judgmental about myself. Judgmental of others. Uh, yeah. So these are sort of things you face, uh, challenges you face. Sadness, depression, loneliness. Stuck on my own, sitting in this cootie, all on my own, hour in, day after day. Nobody loves me. <laughs> These are the kind of things that go on. Getting stuck, obsessed with um, cloth, kind of cloth, obsessed with food, obsessed with cloth and food. <laughs> Obsessed with building projects, obsessed with designing things in my mind, yeah. obsessed with writing ideas about Dhamma, having these great ideas about Dhamma, getting obsessed with them, mental obsession. Uh, so, all these are the sorts of things that come up. Uh, <coughs> trying too hard to get it all right perfectionism with its critical qualities depression being just world is miserable fed up what's the point of it all depressed yeah. what's the point miserable world of hatred and delusion what's the point of being around depressed so these are things that can happen. Generally, you know, it, it's it's very human. I think you know, our own experience is just about everything that a human being can experience, because it's all coming from the same place. And so, with that, you just one thing you begin to recognise: you really nothing surprises you anymore. <laughs> Think, oh yeah. That and one becomes more compassionate just recognizing these universal qualities that contaminate us and one becomes more compassionate and then you feel much more grateful any time any of it stops you feel very grateful and you know and that gratitude and uh, compassion you think this is good I am I'm pleased and as this continues, and this theme continues, then I can see that these other problems, they will pass too. And one feels inspired and practices with joy. Anytime these seemingly stuck, obsessive, really embarrassing, stupid things that you've been stuck with for years, seemingly can't get rid of, whenever one of them begins to fade out, Oh, <laughs> yes, if that can go, then maybe this can go too. <laughs> so you feel, along with the struggle, the challenges, you feel the uh, blessings. Every time a challenge is finally met, and you realize you have to be challenged because if you want to get through this stuff, 
you have to meet all your obsessions and all your obsessive tendencies and that's the riddle that's the puzzle you have to solve in this lifetime so bring it on <laughs> and that's kind of if you want to like that's what not just monks but anybody who wants to practice you put yourself in a situation where you've got to face it because there's no escape and that, that is essential thing of being a monk it's not about being status it's about commitment and you stay with it and you stay with it when you're fed up with it you stay with it <laughs> and you that's how you meet challenges that's how you overcome it yeah good evening, good evening. I have a question um, during meditation, when awareness has been established um, and Vichara and Vitaka are applied accordingly, certain kind of realizations arise. How do we know that those realizations are the right realizations or the right panya according to Dharma and not the realizations that arises out of delusions or preconceived ideas? Well, if they fascinate you, so you start to feel you know something then they're wrong <laughs> so if they if they lead to the ending of suffering and stress even momentarily and there's a sense of space or openness or relief one feels oh, then this surely is in line with what the Buddha's teaching if they just lead to think oh that's wonderful this that this that this that then even if they have a certain truth to them we're getting a little intoxicated so one needs to who is this? who is who is realizing this? Yeah. do you want more of it? that's called tanha now you, you think you are something because of this? this is called bhava bhava tanha so you just let them come and go. Realization that all uh, even realizations are, if they are that which one can witness or be aware of, they are subject to change. And you let them go. Something has probably released itself, something has been understood. You don't need to hold on to the, the thought or the impression, just let that, it's a purification process. So I think that's enough for tonight. I think we've realized something.